Throughout the summer, we've been in a series on mountaintop experiences in the Bible. So last week, we were in Judea, and we were on the mountaintop that has to do with the transfiguration of Christ. Now we're going to move all the way back through time, and we're going to go to another place in the globe, and we're going to arrive in the land of the ancient Bible to the first mountain range listed in Scripture, which is the mountains of Ararat. Now, you may not recognize the name of Ararat, but you sure will know the story that takes place on its summit. People who don't even attend church know about this one. People who have just a casual understanding of the Bible know about this one. At least they think they know about this one. Everybody knows the story of Noah and the animals and the great flood. Now, this has long been one of my favorite stories in Scripture. If you like crafts, you can find Noah's Ark everywhere from pinpoint to needlepoint to plaques to paintings to carvings, you name it. If you go to a craft store, you'll find something about Noah's Ark. I got on uh, Amazon.com this week just to check and see and uh, put in children's book, Noah's Ark, and 665 different children's books. Now, some of those may overlap a little bit. That's a lot of children's books on Noah's Ark. There was a unique restaurant in the St. Louis area. Some of you may have even been there at one time. It was on the west side of the city on I-70 going out of town, and it was called Noah's Ark. It had big animals outside, had sort of the shape of a ship. Uh, on the night that I gave Elsie our, her engagement ring, I took her there to eat. It was a nice restaurant. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the restaurant is gone. Our marriage has survived, but the restaurant uh, is gone. A man in Holland built a one-half replica of the ark, turned it into a floating classroom and a restaurant, the organization Answers in Genesis is planning on building a full-size replica of the ark next to their creation museum in Cincinnati, Ohio in the coming years. And I've had a set of woodworking plans uh, at home for a long time uh, to build a wooden toy ark with carved animals. That's on my bucket list to do uh, one of these days, probably when I retire. In addition to all that, there are many who believe that the, actu the actual ark is buried in a glacier in the Ararat, Ararat mountain range, which is today found in Turkey. You can see on the picture there uh, this aerial photo of, of what looks to be like a wooden structure that pokes out of the ice of that glacier. Uh, several uh, expeditions have been done. The problem is it's hard to get to. One of the men in our congregation has been a part of some of those expeditions, but many believe that the actual ark is encased in the ice there from uh, years gone by. Uh, even the name Noah has become, again, a popular boy's name. And you say, well, yeah, uh, okay. Isn't this just, though, a quaint story for kids and weak-minded adults? I mean, after all, do you really believe that there was a global flood and utter destruction and that God put all the animals on, on one boat and one family and everything started over again? Really? Well, that's a good question. And it's one that deserves our investigation, an honest and open-minded investigation. So let's take a look at how the story Oh, is introduced in Scripture. Now, first thing that you need to know is that if you want to read the whole story, you need to go to 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th chapters of Genesis. I'd encourage you this evening or this afternoon, read the whole thing. I can't, I can't read you the whole story during this time, but I can read you the way it's introduced. In chapter 6, verses 5 and following, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Now, let me explain for you just a minute that, that God is a God of love. God had poured himself into the life of his creation. God had 
trying to build this loving relationship with the people that were a part of his creation, and they had rejected him. No wonder there was pain and grief in his life. We would feel the same way. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I have made them. But Noah, Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From the biblical account, it is clear that the conditions of humanity in that day and time was so corrupt that God's patience had reached a saturation point. Now, God had two options, folks. God could either ditch the whole thing or start over. God could have said, maybe this was a mistake, and just, and everything had been gone. Or, God could start over, which is what he did, and I'm so glad that he made that choice. According to the text, it seems that the only man that was reasonably qualified to be God's partner in this reboot of creation was this man, Noah. Now, I don't want you to miss this important principle. God was not obligated to start over, okay? God didn't have to give us a second chance. And God was not obligated to use one of us. Wasn't, wasn't under any obligation to use a human being to partner with to make all this happen. But you see, that's a part of God's character. His character is always to work with us, not against us. His creation by his own exclamation was very good. That's how it was described when it was finished. His creative genius was not the problem. It was humanity's sinful indulgence. That was the problem, folks. Did you catch that description of humanity? It says every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. <clears throat> What a culture. Now, you need to know right up front, I believe this story to be real. I believe the Bible's account is true. And I want you to know why I believe that, because I think there's a lot that hinges on how we view the story. So let me, let me just give you some, <clears throat> some things to think about, some things to chew on as you try to debate in your own mind. Do, do I really believe this story? Is this an actual event or just a whimsical tale for kids? My first argument, for me at least, goes back to the very population of the world as we have it today. In October of 2011, the Earth's population reached 7 billion. It was 6 billion in 1999, 5 billion in 1985, 2 billion in 1927, 1 billion in 1805. At the time of Jesus, the population of the Earth was estimated at 250 million people. And do you see how things are escalating? Based on those numbers, the population curve, by those who study population growth, has estimated to have begun escalating about 4,000 years ago. Now, according to the Bible timeline, that's about when the flood would have occurred 4,000 years ago. Now, I know a lot of people are fearful that uh, the, the, the population of the world is, the world is overcrowded, all kinds of things. Do you realize this morning that 7 billion people could stand shoulder to shoulder within the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida? Do you know that? If you could gather all the people from the globe and put them in one place, we could all stand within the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida. The world is not too crowded yet. Now, there's places where it's extremely crowded. But 7 billion people, 
And yet, if the earth is as old as science has supposed, if humanity has been on the globe for tens of thousands of years, the number of people on earth would now number into the trillions. Population experts estimate that the population growth has been a steady 2% growth through the last several years. But let's not take the 2%, all right? Let's take a real conservative look. Let's take one half of 1% population growth. Let's extrapolate backwards for one million years. Let's suppose that humanity's been here for one million years and it started from one family and it's only one half of 1% population growth. If that were the case, today the population of the earth would number 10 followed by 2,100 zeros. Even if a near zero population growth rate occurred for one million years, there would be in the excess of three trillion people on the face of the earth today. Assuming the modest one-half percent growth rate, it would have taken just over 4,000 years to produce seven billion people. Interesting, isn't it? I, I wish time this morning would allow me to, uh, to talk about the hydroplate theory regarding the fountains of the deep and the continental shift question, the theory that at one time all the land mass was together and that following some kind of a cataclysmic event, it broke apart Perhaps many of the mountain ranges and the great canyons of our day were created in the shifts of these global flood plates. I, I don't know what happened there. None of us were there to see it. Obviously, we can only extrapolate. But, but if the mountain ranges were, were tweaked, if they shot up higher after the flood or something happened, well, let me tell you why I'm asking the question. The top 3,000 feet of Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, from 26,000 to 29,000 feet, the top 3,000 feet is made of sedimentary rock and it is packed with seashells and fossilized closed clamshells. The fact that the clamshells are closed indicates that they were destroyed instantaneously in some manner. Now, you, you explain to me how seashells and closed clamshells and sedimentary rock gets to the top 3,000 feet of Mount Everest. Unless, of course, there was some kind of a global flood and the upheaval afterwards. Here's something else to consider. The dimensions of the ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, that's approximately three stories high, is one of the most stable dimensions for a boat, almost impossible to capsize. Uh, a 1992 Korean study conducted by evolutionist Dr. Hong compared 12 other vessels of the same volume but tweaking the length or the width or the height and discovered that the overall best, most stable design of a boat on the water was the dimensions of the ark. And the dimensions are nearly identical to those of ocean-going cargo ships today. Why? Because it's so stable. Some have suggested that a wooden ship at that time could not have held together. But we know that the ancient Greeks had a way of building ships that made for firm construction. They used mortise and tin and overlapping boards and wooden pegs, and they coated it on the inside with tar and on the outside with tar. And these boats were very, very capable. The ancient Chinese sailed boats that were in the size of the ark. This is not impossible because we know from history others have done similar things. Could the ark have held all the animals? Well, when you remove from the list of creatures those that could have survived in the water, which is the bulk of, uh, of the animal kingdom, the list contains about 35,000 animal species. All right, if you figure 
they came in pairs, roughly 70,000 animals. Now, this is a guesstimate. Uh, the average size of most land animals is, is the size of a sheep or less. Okay, that's the average size, just uh, from that standpoint. And since 240 sheep fit comfortably in an average-sized double-deck railroad car, I do not know how they polled the sheep to find out if they were comfortable in a double-deck railroad car. But assuming that that's true, and since the volume of the ark could have been equal to 569 such railroad cars, calculations showed that the animals, all 70,000 of them, could have fit in 50% of the ark's capacity and been very comfortable and, and well cared for. The other 50% of the ark then would have been to hold the grain and the food and the drinking water and the housing for Noah and his family. Regarding the large animals, you say, how'd they get elephants and that kind of thing on there? They would take up so much room. Do, do you read anywhere in the account where it says that they took adult animals? Would it not have made sense to take young animals onto the ark? That would have been a good thing, especially since the fact they were going to repopulate the earth starting with younger animals would have been a great way to do it. And remember, there were seven of all the clean animals taken on board. They were perhaps used for food. We know they were used for sacrifices after the ark came to rest. And you say, oh, but... How could Noah gather all these animals? How could he know? Well, he didn't. The Bible says that God brought the animals supernaturally or he gave them instinct that there was some kind of a coming disaster. I mean, animals sense things before we do. God may have built it into them. I don't know, but I know that God could handle. That would be no big deal for, for God to handle. And if you say, well, I'm not sure I can believe that. Okay, okay. Then you answer me this question because this one is one that science hasn't been able to answer yet. And you'll see it, <clears throat> maybe even today on your way home. Uh, this summer, <clears throat> we, uh, Elsie and I took our granddaughter Addie to a butterfly palace, and I was reintroduced to the monarch butterfly that I had in my entomology collection in 4-H back when I was a teenager. I had forgotten how fabulous the monarch butterfly is. Now, let me start with this, okay? The monarch butterfly winters in Mexico, at least the ones from the Midwest. If it's on the West Coast, they winter in Southern California. And after their migration and their hibernation, they, they come to life, they, they mate, and, and then they start their journey back north and they lay eggs along the way. That's in February and March. The first generation of the next monarch butterfly is born in March, April. Uh, the, so that's the first generation after uh, the winter. Second generation is born May, June. Third generation is born July, August. The fourth generation is born September, October. Now, you've got four generations actually f separated from those that left Mexico and made, started making their journey back up this way. The first three generations live two to six weeks. But the fourth generation of the monarch butterfly lives for four to six months. It's the one that makes the journey all the way back. But here's the thing. That butterfly is four generations removed from the butterfly that left Mexico to come back. And it never made it back until these generations brought about. How does that butterfly, four generations removed, know exactly where to fly to in Mexico? And it's been doing it for generations, year after year after year after year. Science cannot figure out what it is about the butterfly. If God can build into the brain of a butterfly, four generations removed from his ancestors that came from Mexico to get back to the very same place year after year. Then God can get the animals to the ark. 
Did you know that there are no less than 268 global flood legends from various ancient civilizations, with most of them having details similar to that of the biblical story? The biblical story is far more detailed than anything else, but they all have these stories. And you say, what well, doesn't that discredit the Bible? To the contrary, it adds credibility. If you've got global flood stories in all these religions and cultures around the world, how did they get a similar story unless there was an actual event to create it? If we started again from knowing his family, that would have passed through all their generations by oral tradition. Dramatic changes occurred following the flood in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. It's the first time we read of four seasons, seed time and harvest. That would be spring and fall, winter and summer. The, the universally warm tropical climate of the polar regions was forever gone. Life expectancy after the flood in the Bible drops dramatically. And in addition to all of that, we have the biblical evidence. Uh, first, this is the most precisely recorded year in the whole Bible. Do you know that? That there are more details about the year of, of Noah's adventure than any other year in biblical history. They entered the ark one week before the flood waters began to fall from the sky. Now, it had been a long week, wouldn't it? Cooped up on an ark with all these animals and all your neighbors laughing at you as they walked by. Hey, where's the rain? Where's the water? Forty days then of rain, 150 days of flood as it pervaded on the globe. It took 163 days for the waters to begin to recede enough, and then it took another 57 days for the land to dry out enough that they could leave the ark. That's 370 days over a year they spent on that ark, but the greatest detail of any one year in biblical history. And the Bible says that God shut the door of the ark. I, I don't think any mortal man with any ounce of compassion could have done anything but open the door when the rains begin to come and the floodwaters begin to rise and people started pounding on the side of the ark. Noah, we believe now. We believe now. Open the door. Who, who, what mortal man? could not have opened the door to his neighbors. But God had shut the door because this was his judgment. The prophet Isaiah refers to Noah's day and God's promise to him. The prophet Ezekiel lists him with Daniel and Job as examples of righteousness. The book of Hebrews uh, includes him in the honor roll of the faithful in chapter 11. It says, by faith Noah, when warned about things not seen, um, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that comes by faith. The Apostle Peter uses Noah's obedience to God as an illustration of Christian baptism. In his second leader, he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he writes about the ancient flood being a precursor to the destruction of the world at the end of time. Luke's gospel includes Noah as a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't do well to have a fictional character in the genealogy of Christ, would it? But of all the things that, that make me believe the story is the fact that Jesus believed the story that Jesus referred to it as true. When, when Jesus was asked, give us some kind of an indication of what the end of time will be like, this is how Jesus answered in Matthew 24. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, listen carefully. Stay with me for this. If, if Jesus believed the story is true, that, 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 in my mind, answers the question. Because, folks, if the story isn't true, if it is mythological, and Jesus said it's true, 
then he's a liar. And if Jesus lies, then he is not God in the flesh. And if he is not God in the flesh, he cannot be our Savior. And if he can't be our Savior, we are miserably duped. We might as well sell the building, go out the doors, go home, never come back again. Because there's no reason to come back, because without a Savior, we're lost. So just make the most of it. Do you, do you see how much hangs on what you believe? If you want to dismiss the story of Noah, then, then just realize the consequences of doing so. And you say, well, that's all well and good, but what, what kind of lessons can I take home from this? Well, let me give you just a few real quickly this morning. Here's the first one. Be faithful to God even if you stand alone in that faith. Noah did what was right, was above reproach in his behavior, and was committed to God despite the fact that no one else was. Now, how did he do that? How, how do you live among a people like that and be the only one of strong faith. I find myself feeling disheartened as I look at culture around me and sense that our society, our world is moving farther away from God. When I read the antics of such groups as Freedom From Religion Foundation, I'm saddened to think how our society has changed. And yet this morning, by the time we're all done, there will be nearly 3,000 people here. That's just here. 3,000 people who have come because they have some faith in God. And that doesn't take into account all the places that the body of Christ meets around the world. We are not alone. That should encourage you, even though at times it may feel like we are alone. We're, we're far from being alone. Noah held on even though he was. And if he could hold on, then you and I can hold on. And so when you feel that everybody's kind of poking fun at you or doesn't believe what you believe or, or, or you feel out of the loop, in our culture. You just hang on, okay? Uh, don't become defensive about your faith. Don't become apologetic for your faith. And for goodness sakes, don't whine about what's going on in culture. And, and, uh, and, and don't feel sorry for yourself. And don't overreact and get angry about it, okay? Just be committed, consistent, and charming in your life. Nobody wants to hear about your faith if you're always whining. Okay? So just be consistent and charming. Be smart about this. God called us to be smart. <laughs> I like the way Don Hutchinson put it. He said, Jesus said to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, not vicious as snake and stupid as pigeons. So act like you got some smarts. You're not alone. And even if you are, even if you were, Noah made it, and you can too. You see, someday when you stand before God, it will not matter what your angry coworker felt about God or how your disbelieving neighbor criticized your faith. It will only matter that you stayed consistently faithful to God. Noah stayed the course, you too. Be a man or woman with character. So we oftentimes ask the question, what was, was Noah some kind of a Bible superhero? Was he a Mr. Goody Two-Shoes? <laughs> no, he was just an ordinary man with all the frailties that we have. He was an ordinary man who was assigned an extraordinary task, but then we have been too, you know, to reach this world with the gospel of Christ. That's a pretty extraordinary challenge. Noah wasn't perfect. He was flawed just like the rest of us. As a matter of fact, the Bible points out his sins, but he was striving to do the right thing, and he was striving to have a good reputation, and he was striving to be devoted to God and obedient to his commands, and that's what God asks. He doesn't ask for perfection. He just wants us to be walking in that direction. These qualities have nothing to do with a good education, social standing, good looks, or lucky breaks. These are the qualities of character, and anybody in this room can match Noah on that, if you will. 
So be a man or woman with character. Third thing, teach your family well. I'm amazed that Noah's sons rallied to the cause and helped him build the ark. His family did not waver in their faith. Now, remember this. That, that goes back to Noah's character. God only spoke to Noah. He did not speak to Ham, Sham, and Japheth or their wives or Noah's wife. All the word came through Noah. And when Noah goes to his sons and said, God spoke to me and God wants me to build this ark and he wants me to take these animals because there is a flood coming, it was only because their father's credibility was so great that they said, okay, Dad, don't get this, don't understand it. This is a hard one to swallow, but if you say it's true, I'll do it. I'll believe. I'll follow you. Can I ask you a question? Is your character such that if God came to you with something as extravagant as that, and you told your family, and they gulped a couple times, and they said, we don't get this, Dad, but we know you, and we know you don't tell us lies, and that you're honest, and that you're a man of character. So if you say it's true, it must be true. We're with you. Would your family help you build, or would your family bolt and run based on your character? Teach your family well by word and deed. And the last thing is, remember this, God is a God of second chances. I love verse 8 of chapter 6. If ever a grammatical conjunction was important, it's here. God says everything is gone, but then in Verse 8, it says, but Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, people get, get really hung up on how could a loving God do something that is so horrendous? It's a question that both skeptics and believers wrestle with as we read this story. But, but that's to overlook the serious nature of sin. As a perfect, holy, and loving God, he cannot, he must not excuse or tolerate or overlook human rebellion against him. Folks, God is not obligated in any way to put up with our sin, and God is not obligated in any way to us to find a way to forgive us our sin, and yet he did exactly that. Perhaps the more difficult question to answer is this, what prevented God from saving anyone? Why didn't God just blank it all out? But Noah, but Noah found grace, and God said, we're going to do a reboot of cre creation. We're, we're, we're going to start again. I'm going to work with you, Noah. You're going to trust me. It is a story of destruction and punishment, but even more, it's a story of hope and grace. This is the first time we find grace in the Scriptures, folks. But from here on out, it is the theme of God's Word. The grace of God does not prevent wickedness from being punished. God is not some beneficent, senile, dementia-filled grandfather sitting up in heaven that will forget everything. No, no. God is just patient, extremely patient. And like he waited in the day of Noah, he is waiting now for as many as possible to come to him. What he did at the cross was like what he did at the flood. He made possible grace for us. What's that grace like? What's that grace look like? Uh, there's all kinds of stories you could tell. I, <clears throat> I understand that Noah, Alaska... Uh, this community on the edge of the Bering Sea, which is like a lot of villages in Alaska. I understand that this, this village is unique in this concept. The, the ground is, is frozen most of the time, and it's that spongy-like tundra, which means landfills for garbage are, are pretty much impossible. And so garbage trucks there do not pick up the stuff that doesn't 
biodegrade, you know, the stuff that we like to get rid of. And so in North Alaska, people put their used dryers and washers and junk cars and piles of scrap boards and everything out in their front yard. And if you visit Nome, Alaska during the summer, I am told that it looks pretty, pretty nasty. The, nasty. The, the, the tourists that go through this say, oh, how could people live with junk like this all the time? But nine months out of the year, it is winter. And nine months out of the year, Nome, Alaska is covered with this blanket of beautiful, pristine white snow. People who go there for the Iditarod race think of it as this quaint, beautiful little town because why? You can't see the garbage when it's covered by the beauty of the snow. That's God's grace. The garbage of our life looks pretty ugly, but God has given us his grace like a blanket of white snow. Isaiah said, our sins were like crimson. They are now white as snow. That's his grace. You see, the ark is a shadow of the church. It's a picture of the church. What the ark was to the lost of Noah's day, the church is to the lost of our day. Like the ark, the church is the only soul-saving institution in the world. Like the ark, the church has but one door. It's Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you, storms will arise in your life, your career, your home, your marriage, your health, and only your trust in the God of grace will get you through. You know, at the end of the story, <clears throat> after the storm, after the flood, God gives a rainbow. And he says, Noah, when you see this rainbow, you remember my promise. I, I, I love to see a rainbow. And I don't know what you think of when you think of see a rainbow. I guess you, people think of a lot of things. I think of one thing. Every time I see a rainbow, the first word that pops to my mind is grace. That's a reminder of God's grace. Every time he, the rainbow appears at the end of the storm, it's God saying, I keep my promises. Noah built by faith, but God is the one that made the ark last through the storm. Noah was saved not because the ark was so seaworthy, but because God is so trustworthy. His grace can do the same for you this morning. His grace of second chances can give you the opportunity to start over again.